0: Hello, listeners. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amber Nickel, the host of the channel, and today we are go- going to be talking with Andrew Porwancher about his most recent publication, *The Jewish World of Alexander Hamilton*, which comes out this year on Princeton University Press. You can actually pick up a copy directly from Princeton University Press or anywhere where books can be purchased today. Among his very long list of accolades, Andrew is an Ernest May Fellow at Harvard University's Belfer Center and the Whit Associate Professor at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, Andrew was actually just recently also so, uh, selected as one of five finalists for the Journal of American Revolution's Book of the Year Award, which is amazing. Congratulations, Andrew.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast.
0: Ah, We are excited for this discussion today. Uh, Well, welcome to the channel. I am super stoked to discuss this text with you. As many of my listeners know, I'm generally a scholar of Central and Eastern European Jewelry. However, as a big fan of Hamilton, the musical, which I'm guessing you are as well, and a scholar of Jewish studies, I immediately wanted to read this book. And I'm glad that I did. Because it was
1: delightful.
0: Before we get started, is there anything else that you want to share with readers about yourself today?
1: I often have been fortunate to have the opportunity to share this research with Jew- Jewish audiences and synagogues and other settings. And that tends to be in large coastal cities where the concentrations of Jewish population are in America. And I often get the question you know, what are you doing out in Oklahoma? And counterintuitively, this flagship state university in the Southern Plains was the perfect setting to conceive and incubate this idea. I have an appointment in a constitutional studies program for undergraduates and a secondary appointment in Judaic studies. There are a number of universities in the country that have Jewish studies programs, a handful that have constitutional studies programs, but the University of Oklahoma is the only institution in America that has both. And so it was the ideal terrain for a book that lies at the intersection of Jewish studies and constitutional studies to take root.
0: You know, that actually leads perfectly to my next question, because I was really curious about the path that led you to this particular topic. Uh, I'm guessing it had a little bit to do with where you are, but is there something else that might've motivated you to research and write the Jewish world of Alexander Hamilton?
1: I was brought to the University of Oklahoma starting in 2011 to teach constitutional history. And I love to bring in biographical details of the historical figures whom we're covering in class. I find that adding some slice of personal history, helps make a document like the Federalist Papers less of a bloodless abstraction and more of a flesh and blood artifact of humanity. And in reading up on Hamilton to share some of those details with my students, I find that he had a mother named Rachel Levine, that she enrolled him in a Jewish school. These were well-known facts among Hamilton scholars that had been largely shrugged off. And I thought, these are rather curious details for someone for whom it's assumed was a cradle-to-grave Christian. And these doubts that I harbored about the inherited wisdom concerning Hamilton nagged at me for years. And finally, in 2015, I got a grant to go down to the Caribbean islands of his youth and to start looking through different archives. And this began a fall down a rabbit hole that ended up taking up the better part of a decade of my life and ultimately culminated in the publication of this book.
0: So like many of your potential readers out there listening today, the first question that I had when I saw this book was, could it possibly be? Was Alexander Hamilton Jewish? Uh, It seems like almost a scandalous question, and I couldn't figure out why, which is why I wanted to read this book. So was he? Was he Jewish? In a
1: word, probably. Hamilton's mother, Rachel, was not born a Jew. Now, because Jewish identity is matrilineal, we have to begin with the mother. Rachel was born into a Christian family in the British Caribbean. But there is cause to believe that she converts to Judaism. She ends up moving to St. Croix, a Danish Caribbean island, where she meets and marries Johan Michael Levine. And there is compelling evidence to think that Levine was Jewish. He was disproportionately likely to conduct business with Jews. He had previously worked on an island with a sizable Jewish community. He, uh, he was his last name was Levine I mean his name is actually spelled in a variety of spellings Lavian lewin spellings that match how Jews of Levitic descent spelled their surnames often in the eighteenth century. Hamilton's own grandson expressly identifies Levine as a quote rich Danish jew and so if Johann Levine were in all likelihood Jewish, the question becomes. Did Rachel possibly convert to Judaism to marry him? And here, there are some compelling hints that she likely did. They have a child a year after their wedding named Peter Levine, who was not infant baptized, which was universal practice for island Christians. Years later, Peter undertakes an adult baptism to join the Anglican Church under circumstances that only make sense if he's converting to Christianity. Now, many Hamilton scholars who are mired in the assumption that Johann, Rachel, and Peter were all cradle to grave Christians are baffled by his need for this adult baptism. But if Johann were indeed Jewish and Rachel converts to Judaism to marry him, then that would make her son, Peter, a Jew. And his need for this adult baptism, this long standing mystery among Hamilton scholars, is suddenly easily explained. But that's just one piece of evidence for your listeners to consider. Rachel has a deeply troubled marriage with Johan. She ends up absconding from the island of St. Croix in the Danish Caribbean, leaving behind Johan and their young son. She winds up on the British island of Nevis where she bears Alexander out of wedlock to a Scottish colonist named James Hamilton. And while James was unquestionably a Gentile, there are compelling reasons to think that Rachel actually raises Alexander in her adopted faith of Judaism. Among the baptismal records that are on the island, they're incomplete, but the ones we have show no entry for Alexander. More compelling than that is the fact that, as mentioned, Rachel enrolls him in a Jewish school. When he was little, Hamilton's teacher would put him on a table at this school, presumably so they would be eye level, and he would recite to her the Ten Commandments in the original Hebrew. Now, as mentioned, it's long been known that Hamilton has no known surviving baptismal record. It's long been known he goes to this Jewish school. How do Hamilton scholars make sense of these curiosities? They say, well, he was born out of wedlock. And so he must have been denied an infant baptism on account of his illegitimacy. And if he can't be baptized into the church, he can't go to the church school. And that must be why he goes to the Jewish school. And this is a very neat and tidy explanation. But it's one that fails to accord with the historical record in the records On St. Croix, and indeed throughout the Caribbean, we find examples of children born out of wedlock who were infant baptized. We have precious little grounds for believing that Hamilton's illegitimacy posed an obstacle to his membership in the church or participation in a church school. Moreover, the notion that a child who was considered Christian would have attended a Jewish school in this time and place... Is dubious based on what we know of 18th century Jewish life. For a variety of political and theological reasons, a Jewish school almost certainly would have only educated a child whom that Jewish community saw as one of its own. The attendance of any kid at a Jewish school in that time creates a strong presumption of that child's Jewish. Identity, And so I'm, I'm compressing seven years of research into uh, a couple minutes here, and uh, I, could, I could go on for hours, but that is a bird's eye view of some of the most important pieces of evidence that we have suggesting that Hamilton, in all likelihood, had a Jewish identity in some sense of that term for some stretch of his life.
0: Amazing, Uh, as somebody who has finished reading your book, I know that it's more than just a biography of Hamilton. You present a sort of dual biography of Hamilton and the New York Jewish community among the Jewish communities at other locations in which Hamilton resided. As someone who generally approaches questions of Jewish emancipation from a European perspective, this text really made me rethink Jewish emancipation globally and the role that American Jews played in their own emancipation. In particular, the figure of Solomon Simpson stood out to me, and I was wondering if you would be willing to share Solomon's story with readers today.
1: That's a great question, Amber. Solomon's story is really interesting because in many ways it's microcosmic of the experience of New York Jewry at large. I should say, uh, by way of a preface, that Hamilton, in his American years, does not identify as Jewish. He's at least nominally identifying as Christian, but he maintains relationships with the Jewish community for the remainder of his life. And one of the most important forums where the cultivation of those relationships takes place is the legal arena. Hamilton, after the revolution, transitions from a career as a soldier to one as a litigator at the New York bar. And Solomon Simpson is one of the first, perhaps the first Jew whom Hamilton represents in court. And it's an interesting case. It's a dispute between merchants. Solomon Simpson was in the candle making business and the opposing party in the lawsuit was none other than Aaron Burr. And so we see an early example of Hamilton and Burr facing off against one another. Ultimately, of course, that rivalry would culminate decades later with fatal consequences on the dueling ground. But to come back to the 1780s, Solomon Simpson is an interesting figure in part because of his father, Joseph Simpson. Joseph was a native of Frankfurt, and he had bitter memories of his youth in Europe, where he had been forced to wear a Jew badge identifying him by this subalternate religious identity. Now, in the 1770s, the Simpson family, both Joseph, Solomon, and Solomon's brother, Samson, are confronted with a question that all Jews in New York are confronted with. It's 1776. The British are surrounding New York, they're soon to invade in a bid to seize Manhattan. And the Simpson family has to decide, are we going to stay and pledge our fealty to the crown? Or will we leave Manhattan in solidarity with the Patriot cause? This was a heartrending question for so many Jews. There was plenty of reason to stay. New York Jews, in terms of commercial opportunity and religious freedom, we were about as well off as Jews almost anywhere in the world at that point. And there was also hesitation to abandon a Jewish congregation that had taken generations to build up. New York was home to Shirith Israel, the oldest Jewish community in North America. And it was founded with the hope that there could be some sort of permanent home for Jewish life. In the New World. And the thought of abandoning that home was a difficult one. And yet, at the same time, there were reasons to leave, partly commercial. American colonists, of course, resented British interference in the American economy. And Jews, who are important as traders and merchants, feel in a very salient way the effects of that British interference. But there are high minded reasons for Jews to leave New York in league with the revolutionaries as well the declaration of independence promised jews something that no european country ever had equality and so jews like joseph simpson who knew what it meant to be treated as a second-class citizen and his sons ultimately enthralled to the egalitarian promise of the revolution leave new york city in solidarity with the Patriots, their story is reflective of New York Jewry, which by and large did abandon their homes and laid their stake in the hopes for a new republic where Jew and Gentile might yet stand upon equality.
0: So far, we've talked a little bit about Hamilton, about the Jewish community, but in many ways, in the Jewish world of Alexander Hamilton, you also present a very significant historiographical intervention into constitutional history. Can you tell us a little bit more about this?
1: Well, this book is very much a work of Jewish history. I really come to this project with my background as a constitutional historian. And I think there are two main contributions that this book makes to the study of American constitutionalism. First, the book suggests that the First Amendment enshrining free exercise as a paramount American liberty is actually not the most important part of the U.S. Constitution when it comes to minority faiths. There's a lesser known clause that I think is of greater significance. and. In many ways, it is uniquely Jewish history that throws into high relief why the the Free Exercise Clause might be less significant than we imagine. There is a clause in the text of the Constitution that bans religious tests for federal office, both appointed and elected. At that time, most state constitutions had language akin to the Free Exercise Clause. That we later find in the First Amendment, but that was just an abstract promise of liberty. Those same constitutions, most of the time in most states, banned Jews from running for legislative office. And so these state constitutions teach us that an abstract promise of religious freedom can mean very little in practice. And so the fact that the delegates at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787 come together. In a country where banning Jews from office is the norm and they choose not to ban Jews but to ban religious tests is an extraordinary advance for religious liberty. There is a longstanding and rich debate among scholars about to what extent the Constitution advanced the egalitarian ideals of the revolution and to what extent the Constitution was in some respects a counter-revolution. And I make this argument about religious liberty in the Constitution not in any way to invalidate the story of enslaved people, the story of women, the story of Native Americans, of so many groups that were denied the equality they sought by the U.S. Constitution. My claim here is not intended to be in service of some sort of apology for the Constitution. My goal is to tell The richness of this story with the complexity that it deserves. And I'll say briefly the second contribution that I hope this book makes to constitutional history is that it questions the assumption that we often make that those who favored the separation of church and state must have been the most sympathetic to minority faiths, and that those who wanted a closer relationship between government and religion must have had the least compassion for minority faith groups. And Hamilton abends that assumption. He, on the one hand, is as pluralistic a founder as they come. He is the greatest champion of civic equality for America's Jews among the founders. And yet he also believes that religion is an essential tool in the cultivation of civic health. This is not an endorsement of the Hamiltonian view, but it is a warning about the dangers of taking the logic of our modern politics and projecting them neatly onto the past.
0: Your source base in this text is really remarkable. Uh, I could tell just reading the painstaking research that you had to do to suss out some of the lesser known aspects of Hamilton's life. It really was impressive. I was wondering if you would share a little bit more about your sources and your encounters with them, with listeners today.
1: The experience of working with 18th century Caribbean sources is challenging. It's often tedious, but ultimately really rewarding. Much of the scholarship on Hamilton's adult life is excellent and nuanced and textured in all the ways that we want the best scholarship to be. And yet his Caribbean years are given short shrift. And many Hamilton biographers have taken to making claims about his obscure origins in the West Indies without actually testing those claims against the historical record. And so the opportunity to use this Caribbean source material allowed me, in in many instances for the first time, to scrutinize widely held, oft-repeated suppositions about what Hamilton's childhood was like. One of the great challenges was using the material from the Danish West Indies, partly because records have been lost to hurricanes, they've been destroyed by fires. They've been uh, partially eroded because of tropical humidity. Many of the documents I was using have been partially eaten by bugs. So they look like pieces of Swiss cheese. There's so many holes in them. And I had to learn enough of the Danish keywords to make it through some of the records. And the documents are written in this crazy 18th century Gothic script that's difficult even for native Danes today to read. So all of this made for a painstaking effort. I think the fact that it is so painstaking is part of the reason why many Hamilton scholars have not bothered to actually subject longstanding claims to scrutiny, instead repeating them rather than going back to the source material. But ultimately, it was in that Caribbean source material where I was able to get a more accurate sense of Hamilton's early years, one that so often contravened the inherited verities that have been passed down from one generation of Hamilton scholars to the next. And I'll give you just one example. Hamilton scholars, many have long held that Johann Levine wasn't Jewish because supposedly he's not identified in the Danish land records or census registers as a Jew but they hadn't actually bothered consulting the Danish source material. I went through 3,000 of these records. What did I find? Well, it turns out that these scholars were right. Levine is not identified as Jewish, but scholars failed to realize is that every other known Jew on the island is also not identified as Jewish in these records. This is a really good example of a point that I often talk about in my classroom with students, which is the importance of going to the footnote, checking it, and taking nothing at face value, and finding out the truth for yourself.
0: Yes, to all of that. I think I repeat the same thing to my students at least twice a semester. (laughs) Um, This is a bit of a bigger question uh, and a little bit outside of the text. And it feels funny asking after you just said, don't read the the current back on the past, Uh, but I left your text thinking about the relationship between anti-federalism and anti-Semitism. Historically, you demonstrate that there was one. Do you think this relationship has some much longer afterlife in contemporary political discourses?
1: In a word, yes. So let me say a word, Amber, about anti-Semitism in Hamilton's day. And then fig through that afterlife, which, as your question hints at, endures to the present day. At that time, in the years of the Constitutional Convention, the ratification debates, the early years of Washington's administration, when Hamilton is Treasury Secretary, we see significant overlap between anti federalism, as you've noted and anti-Semitism, and it shouldn't come as a huge surprise. Those who supported the ratification of the Constitution were more likely than its opponents to live in an urban setting. They were more likely to value the Republic as embarking on a commercial enterprise as a significant source of its economy, uh, as opposed to staying mired in an agrarian economy. And they were more likely to believe in the merit of centralized power. Well, Jews are urban rather than rural. They're engaged in trade and finance rather than agriculture. And they're supportive of this new constitution that consolidates a lot of power in the federal government, in part because it also treats them on an equality with their Gentile neighbors. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that the very forces that are opposed to the ratification of the Constitution, that are opposed to Hamilton's financial plans as some sort of nefarious exercise in the dark arts of finance, are also often infusing their criticism of these endeavors with anti-Semitism. In so many respects, the opposition to federalism and the opposition to Jews are really both symptoms of the same root fear, which is a fear of modernity, a fear that the urban commercial future will displace the rural agrarian life that so many Americans are clinging to. Jews are feared as cosmopolitans, as rootless, as border crossing. And there's a lot of anxiety that Jews are going to use their superior knowledge of finance to somehow bilk ordinary citizens, farmers and soldiers. If we fast forward to today, you can certainly find strains of anti-Semitism on all sides of the political spectrum. And indeed that was true at Hamilton's era as well. It's particularly pronounced in the far right today where we see anxiety about the country becoming diverse and losing its homogeneity. We see a fear of so-called globalists. Uh, we see anxiety about coastal elites who are concentrated in these faraway urban settings. And we see a lot of anxiety and distrust of major institutions, be it big government or Wall Street. And much of that opposition is infused with anti-Semitism. It It is striking how much the structure of anti-Semitism in Hamilton's day mirrors that which we find in our own.
0: Thank you for that answer. There was a ton of rich material in this text, and like all authors, I'm sure that you had to make a few cuts along the way. Was there any material that you had to cut that you really want to share with listeners today?
1: That's a really good question, Amber. And in all the talks that I've given or podcast interviews I've done, you're the first person to ask me that question. There was one line of argumentation that ultimately was too speculative to put in the book, but I'm, I'm happy to share it with your readers. Eric Nelson wrote a book that some of your listeners might be familiar with, especially people who do European Jewish studies, called The Hebrew Republic. And the book uncovers a largely lost strand of Enlightenment thought in Europe, that looked to the Hebrew Bible as a constitutional text, that looked to the ancient Israelite government as a model for modern nation states. And one of the principal exponents of using the Hebrew Republic as a template for modern nations was the Dutchman Hugo Grotius. I sometimes sort of pronounce Grotius, so if there are any listeners who study Dutch history, my apologies here if I'm, if I'm butchering the pronunciation. Hamilton is an avid reader of Grotius, and Hamilton is particularly prone to cite some of Grotius's texts that are principally interested in the Hebrew Republic. And I've long suspected that Grotius is the intermediary through which Hamilton might, in a broad sense, be basing his ideas of constitutionalism on the ancient Israelite polity. Now, I think ultimately those dots, uh, the, the connections between those dots are too inferential to put between the covers of the book, but it's interesting to me to at least speculate that someone like Hamilton who goes to a Jewish school in his youth, who likely grows up with a Jewish identity, may well have been particularly amenable as an enlightenment thinker in his own right to seeing the Hebrew Bible as a basis on which to think through the central challenges of statecraft in his own time.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Andrew. That adds actually a little bit more texture to the way that I'm thinking about this and thinking through this. Uh, I don't know if you have the answer, but do you know if that was one of the 15 or so texts that his mom had at home that he read all the time?
1: We don't know. Uh, There's so much about Hamilton's youth and his life with his mother uh, that evades us. But what I do know is that uh, Hamilton did have copies of Grotius in... His library and James Kent, who was a major figure in New York legal circles at the time, once wrote that Hamilton refused to read Grotius in anything other than the original Latin in which Grotius wrote. And so he was deeply committed to Grotius as an authority on matters of state. And I suspect that Hamilton, at the very least, is reading about Grotius' ideas, the extent to which they translate into his own, I leave to some enterprising PhD student in a Jewish studies program to, to chase down this lead.
0: <laughs> so for those of you listening, you guys have somewhere to head uh, right now, the archives. Uh, for, for now, we've taken up quite a bit of your time. I want to wrap up our interview with kind of our traditional closing question on New Books Network. And that's, what are you working on now? What can we expect next?
1: There are two book projects in the works, which I'm both really excited about. The first is tentatively titled The Prophet of Harvard Law, James Bradley Thayer and His Legal Legacy. And it'll be coming out this fall with the University Press of Kansas and its American Political Thought series. And this is a book about a hugely influential but long forgotten legal scholar who taught at Harvard Law in the last quarter of the 19th century. And he's been forgotten because he wasn't a judge. He didn't sit on the bench. He didn't publish that much. And yet he's perhaps the most influential scholar in American legal history because he was a mentor to almost every major iconic name in the pantheon of American judges in the 20th century. People like Oliver Wendell Holmes, Lewis Brandeis, Learned Hand, the most influential, far-reaching judges in the late 19th century learned at their feet. So I'm trying to think of a, a new approach in this book to... Thinking about the intellectual history of the law, one that's rooted not as much in texts and footnotes as it is in interpersonal relationships and networks of mentorship. And I'm working on this book with three former students of mine who I tapped shortly after they graduated from the University of Oklahoma. And I coached them through the research and writing process. We've worked on this book together for the last three years. And in many ways, the joint authorship is something of an homage to the subject matter. Perhaps this is a little bit too on the nose, but it's a book about a professor and his former students written by a professor and his former students. And so I'm really uh, excited about the book, uh, not just because of the subject matter, but I think it showcases the talent that we have at the University of Oklahoma. and, And if your listeners will indulge me just to brag a little bit about these kids, because I think I have a good eye for talent. One of them has since gone on to Yale Law School, another's at the University of Cambridge, the third became a loose scholar. Uh, so it, it's a great cohort of kids who did phenomenal work with really rich historical sources. And I'm excited to share Thayer's story with the field. And the, the latter project, which I'll mention just briefly, is... Now, tentatively titled Theodore Roosevelt and the Jews, The Hidden History of TR's Diplomacy. And this might be a book that, especially uh, if your listeners are working on European Jewish history, is really about a president and Theodore Roosevelt who assumes office at a moment in time when the fate of Russian Jewry becomes a central issue in global affairs. And so the book is about Roosevelt's relationship with the American Jewish community, his relationship with the Eastern European Jewish community, and what those relationships tell us, not just about Roosevelt as a president, but about the place of America on the world stage as it emerges into its superpower role in the dawn of the 20th century.
0: That sounds like I need to read that one and do the next interview or that one. So we'll be looking for that. Uh, thank you for joining us on new books and Jewish studies today, Andrew. And for the listeners out there, if today's discussion piqued your interest, you can pick up a copy of Andrew Porwancher's The Jewish World of Alexander Hamilton directly from Princeton University Press or your local bookstore.